Hasib Qureshi is a managing partner at Dragonfly, a crypto and Web3-focused venture firm founded in 2018. Hasib's path towards becoming a VC was anything but straightforward. At age 19, he dropped out of college to play poker full-time and became one of the strongest no-limit hold'em players in the world. Following his poker career, Hasib discovered effective altruism, gave away the vast majority of his poker winnings, and went back to college to pursue tech startups. He ultimately found his way into the anti-fraud team at Airbnb, but was quickly red-pilled into the crypto industry, working full-time in the space starting in 2017 at Earn.com, which was acquired by Coinbase and later at Metastable Capital. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks for taking the time to talk today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, man. We kind of love to start with your poker career, which I think kind of frames a lot of like your thinking in terms of probabilities and expected values. How did uh, playing poker in the early parts of your life really teach you about risk management, not only about the game of poker, but also kind of about like meta risk factors such as poker sites and casinos themselves? Um, it's a good question and very apropos of what's happening right now with FTX. Um, so at, when I was a poker player, I, I started playing poker very young, and poker teaches you, it teaches you very quickly that um, you cannot trust your judgment when it comes to risk. You have to think about risk probabilistically. You have to think about it mathematically. And a lot of times when you're thinking about risk, your brain, which you learn very quickly as a poker player, is not very good at feeling risk. Meaning that, for example, let's say that you're you're entering into a, a situation where um, you're getting in your money at a 30-70, meaning 30% of the time you win, 70% of the time you lose. Okay, But uh, when you win your money, you're actually going to, let's say, 5x your money. right? And so 30% of the time you 5x your money. That's a great bet. And if you can make that bet repeatedly enough times, you're going to make a lot of money over the long run. But any given time that you bet, you're actually going to lose money on expectation, right? You're going to be negative rather than positive. Now, your expected value is positive, but you're most likely going to have a negative experience. You're most likely going to feel like you're, you're oh, shit, I just lost money, right? And poker teaches you, it trains you to tell that part of your brain that I just made a decision that feels bad because it has a negative outcome. It trains that part of your brain to shut up. And it teaches this other part of your brain that just thinks in terms of, did I make the right decision or not, regardless of the outcome? And if you do this enough, you eventually get to a place where you can be comfortable making bets that lose that still end up being correct. Um, and if you, if you average that out over a long enough time horizon, as a poker player, you learn just by getting to the long run that those small positive decisions add up over time to, be, to end up becoming very large positive outcomes. Uh, and that's one thing I think most people never really learn, which is that um, a small probability of success enough times, attempted uh, often enough, will result in a career of wins. And I think that's probably the best description of what my overall career trajectory looks like, is me doing a lot of seemingly very random things um, and taking a lot of risks that I think in isolation might look reasonable when you when you map them over, like, okay, first you did this, then you did that, and then you end up you know building a VC fund or whatever. Um, but in isolation, any given moment, I can tell you the people around me thought I was crazy. The people around me thought that I was taking crazy risks, that I was throwing things away, that I was wandering into new territories without knowing what I was doing, um, which was true in a sense. But it was also, um, I think every step of the way, I was very mindful of the risks that I was taking and what the downsides actually were and what the upside actually was. And I think most people don't do that. When, when it comes to career risk in particular, a lot of people 
um, they, they think of career risk in a very binary way. What I mean by that is, you know, let's say that you're thinking about starting a startup, okay? And I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate that anybody start a startup, but let's say you're thinking about starting a startup. A lot of people are worried when they're thinking about starting a startup that I might fail, okay? Uh, and they don't want to fail. They're, they're afraid of failure, and so they don't decide to take the leap. Uh, but most, most of those people don't actually even imagine what failure means, right? So what does failure actually mean? If you make it not a binary, but make it a scalar, right? What does failure actually mean? Well, what failure actually means is, you know, I raise some money for a little while, I spend like six months kind of dilly-dallying around and not really doing anything, eventually I give up, and then I go back to school, or I go back to get another job, right? And so in absolute terms, what you've lost there is very minor. It's six months and then like a little bit of lost wages, right? Um, and most people don't, they don't quantify. They don't actually see very clearly what the risk is they're taking. Um, and if you don't do that, you're going to make way fewer risks in your life. And that's the thing I think I learned at a young age, being a poker player, is learning to quantify risk and look at risk clearly in the eye and decide when it does and does not make sense to take a given risk. How did you go from kind of in poker, you can quantify risk and do some GTO calculations and run some pot odds and, and find out what's optimal. But I guess when you go in, out into your career, it's it's much more unknown. It seems much less quantifiable. How did you, did you attempt to quantify that or do you just go with your gut instinct there? Like how, how does that work? I mean, you can quantify some of it, right? So let's say, let's say you are deciding, okay, I want to start, I'm thinking about starting a startup or uh, maybe I should go get a job at a big company, right? Well, you can go look up what do people at this company make? And you can go look up, okay, how many startups are there out there? How many of them end up becoming successful? This data is all out there. You can go look it up. Now, that's not dispositive, right? It's not enough because the question you have to ask yourself is what is the likelihood that I am successful? But if you don't actually really seriously look at these questions, then you're really just guessing. Then you're just kind of just listening to what people around you are telling you to do or you're listening to stories that you're seeing in TV or just the mythology of Silicon Valley or of uh, you know, entrepreneurship that's surrounding you. And I think that's a terrible way to make a decision. So now there's no perfect way. And at, at, at some level, you do have to interrogate your gut and listen to what your gut tells you about how likely do I think I am to succeed relative to the average person? Um, how good of an idea do I think I have? How good of an end do I think I have? You're not going to be able to subject those to you know, mathematical rigor. But um, if you don't know any of the numbers, then you're really just throwing a, you know, you're, you're just throwing a dart on the wall. Right? So first start by learning the basic numbers that, that make the decision space available to you uh, sensible. But even when you're a poker player, yeah, there are a lot of numbers that you can look at. And yes, you can do GTO calculations. But you also have to just look at the person in front of you and think, what do you think they're doing? And unless you can answer that question, which requires you to use your intuition, um, then you're not going to be a great poker player. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, on, on the concept of, of risk, um, kind of shifting a little, a little bit into crypto, um, you, you've voiced some criticism in the past uh, about kind of on-chain insurance and kind of a lot of skepticism around there. Um, and perhaps right, rightfully so, as like insurance premiums would have to be kind of egregiously high in order to match like the relative frequency and size of, of these hacks. Do, do, do you see any like, insurance protocol designs that you like to be explored? Kind of, like, for example, somehow tying it to like the auditors of the protocol or like, is there anything that, that we can try around there? Ooh, I, I don't know about protocol design in particular. And, I, and I, I've learned a long time ago not to speculate on what protocol design is going to end up being successful because I, I don't think that's where I have any unique insight. Um, I think it's more a function of who and, ha and, and um, 
So one, one question is like, why is there such a market failure when it comes to insurance or crypto? Um, a large part of the reason why it's difficult to insure anything is if it's hard to predict and we don't have good um, like sort of actuarial statistics on how often does this thing happen and if so, what's the likelihood of the size of the loss? Crypto's new, smart contracts are new and they're constantly evolving and changing and the surface area of these attacks is not yet completely stabilized to the point where we can predict with some accuracy how many hacks are gonna happen in a year, uh, which smart contracts are more likely to be hacked than others. We have some ideas. We can tell that Compound and Uniswap are probably more secure than you know, some random startup that launched yesterday. But the, the, you know, what you need as an underwriter is you need to be able to say like, okay, I have some loss ratio. My loss ratio is this much and my premiums are paying for my loss ratio. And like, that's, that's the basic business of insurance, right? You need the premiums to outweigh the losses. And um, that, it, unless you actually have some confidence in the calculus that you're doing, you need to charge really high premiums because if, if the error bars around your losses are so big, that's basically, look, it could be like billions of dollars at a loss or it could be a very small amount or almost nothing. Um, if your error bars are that wide, then you're just going to charge super high premiums, right? So the, the, the big problem today is, is not even one about protocol design or one about anything in particular along those lines. The biggest problem today is that we just don't have enough data. And if we had better data or we had better ways of knowing which smart contracts would likely be hacked and in what way, then I think we'd be, you would just see premia across the board going way down. Um, because for now, if, if the premia is just, un, if, the, if the risk is unknown, the premia will just be high because of the fact the risk is unknown and you have to pay yourself, uh, you have to pay for the risk that is just way higher than you otherwise expected. Um, the other thing that I would say, and this is one thing that there are companies that are exploring this, is it does seem like the natural underwriter for a lot of these protocols are actually auditors. Because auditors, I mean, what do they do? They go in, they check to see if the code is broken, they look at code quality, they you know, kind of use their judgment about how, how good this thing is and how robust it is. Um, and kind of what they do at the end is they sort of stamp this thing and they say, here's your audit, you have this many you know, high, um, uh, high severity vulnerabilities, this many medium, this many low. And now in reality, what people do with that is, I mean, one, they obviously fix the high and medium vulnerability stuff uh, or severity, severity bugs. But then a lot of what they do is they kind of parade around, oh, you know, Open Zeppelin, they, they uh, audited me or Certic audited me or this person audited me. And they're sort of using it as a stamp of approval. And if you are in the stamp of approval business, it probably makes sense to also get into the underwriting business because that's basically what you're doing. You're, you know, retail investors or normal power users of DeFi are basically using you as an underwriter to tell them how robust is this thing. Well, if you're actually good at that, which some of them are not, but if you are actually good at that, then you might as well you know, engage in the full value stack. So that's one thing that I would love to see. That's a very different kind of business than just pure auditing. It's also a very capital intensive business. It's a riskier business than auditing. Auditing is a very safe kind of service business. Um, but I, I do think that it is, it would be very interesting to see more auditors get into the insurance business. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think there's like a lot of, a lot of things to be explored there for sure. Um, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask at least one question about Sam, Sam yeah. and FTX. Yeah. Um, I think perhaps one of the under-discussed parts of the story was like the lack of company like structure, kind of named like a CFO and a board, um, whose kind of absence kind of made all of this possible. Um, I, I don't want to like um, remove any blame or anything like that, but it, it seems like the, those absence made, made, it, made it possible. 
it's a different industry, but I think the underrated part of kind of Mark Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook was kind of Zuckerberg's foresight and self-awareness that he kind of didn't know everything at such a young age and was able to bring on experienced leaders like kind of Sandberg and others to kind of create a lasting company. Should, should investors insist on certain parameters such as a board in the future for all crypto companies and how much of it was simply a function of kind of a, like a low interest rate environment and trying to win kind of allocation to the best deals? Yeah, it's a, it's a multifaceted question. So certainly, I, I don't think it's true that all companies need to have boards at all stages with external parties. Um, FTX was relatively unique in that it was so big. I mean, it was you know one of the most highly valued private companies. Uh, its last round put it basically the collective FTX entity at $40 billion valuation, which, you know, if you, if you look at that and you imagine a $40 billion company, which, you know, like there, there are many public companies that are much smaller than $40 billion. Um, and not only is there no oversight, uh, there's no CFO, there's no external board members. Um, it's basically just kind of Sam and his cronies doing whatever the hell they want in the Bahamas. That was most striking. And I don't think anybody even was aware of that, right? Like even for these other companies. Um, now, look, if it's completely privately held, and you don't have outside investors, then fine, okay. You know, not having a board uh, with outside parties is maybe understandable. But for FTX, a lot of the reason why FTX was considered to be so legitimate was the underwriting of folks like, you know, Sequoia and Paradigm and BlackRock and so on. Uh, but not a single one of them insisted on having any of those governance rights. Now, it's definitely true that, you know, last year when a lot of this funding was happening, and then of course in the beginning of this year as well, uh, we were in basically a zero interest rate environment. And there was so much capital chasing uh, opportunities that there was there was just a, a, a very different balance of power between entrepreneurs and capital. And uh, if you were an entrepreneur, especially a very hot entrepreneur, as Sam was at that time, um, you could basically dictate terms. And in fact, the uh, you know, it's, it's um, at this point now well known that in the funding round where FTX Global, the international business, was valued at $32 billion, FTX US was valued at $8 billion, making the combined entity worth $40. Um, it was not actually independently arrived at, the valuation for FTX US. Instead, Sam just told people, if you want to invest, you have to put $4 into this and $1 into that at these valuations. And people did what he said because they wanted to get access to the same empire. Um, and so all of this kind of belies this reality that the investors had no leverage. The investors you know, completely were under the control of what Sam wanted. And um, now if the investors had enough of a spine, to stand up and say, hey, no, that is not okay. Uh, you need to have at least a friggin' CFO, uh, but you definitely need to have some external board members. It doesn't have to be us. It doesn't have to necessarily represent the preferred shareholders, but you do need to have some external oversight over what you are doing if you're running a $40 billion exchange. That, I think, would have been, you know, now, look, there's, there's nothing that stops somebody, I mean, there's not nothing explicitly that stops somebody from committing fraud with a board. You can absolutely commit a fraud without a board, or with or without a board, right? A board uh, meets quarterly. So what is the board going to do if all this stuff happened basically since Three Arrows collapsed in the last few months, which we don't know, but there's, there's reasonable speculation that may have happened. Um, but with a CFO, at least, there would be some oversight and some real accounting. When they released their balance sheet, you know, it was like the most Mickey Mouse balance sheet I've ever seen, right? It was just like some Excel sheet and there's a big <laughs> fiat, unlabeled hidden fiat account worth $8 billion. 
you know, estimates for everything. There's just clearly no real system here, right? This thing was just a, it was just a clown show. So that, um, if the investors knew that, and, and I think we're going to learn over time what was actually provided to investors and what did investors actually see in their due diligence. But um, so far, it's not, it's not looking good for um, VCs on the whole, or at least the VCs who invested into FTX as being good stewards of, of capital in this whole, this whole mess. What's what's the equilibrium number of like crypto venture capital firms? Would you say do do you think we'll see kind of more in the future, or do do you think that we'll see some consolidation or like general attrition given kind of market downturns? We're definitely going to see consolidation, right? Anytime that there's a downturn, you see consolidation. Um, I mean, I don't even know how many total there are. Obviously, there are many small funds and then a small number of big funds. Um, I think you're you you obviously already are seeing some funds shuttering, and you know, shutting down operations no longer being viable. Um, there are a lot of also generalist funds that were touching crypto that I think after getting burned, especially if they were burned in FTX, you know, they're not coming back for a while. So there's a natural attrition um, and a natural consolidation just from that. But, um, you know, what is the equilibrium number? I, I would say probably among big players, like serious players who are, who are fighting over the top deals, um, I would say probably six or seven is going to be the equilibrium number, something in that ballpark. That, that's actually a lot less than I than I would have thought. Actually, mm. how, how many like serious Web two firms do you think there are? Uh, um, the same ballpark. I, I mean, if you're talking about like the the top tier brands mm. that are that are like trading blows over the top deals, or as you think about Andreessen, Sequoia, Greylock, uh, Redpoint, Founders Fund, um, Kosla, you know, it's like maybe ten, mm. right? There's not that many. Mm. Um, I think in crypto venture, it's probably smaller. I mean, it's a smaller field. Um, but the, the thing that you have to ask yourself is like, what is there even to differentiate these people on? Um, and if there aren't enough, if there aren't enough dimensions of differentiation, then naturally there's going to be somebody who's just domi- who just dominates others, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, if you are just a baby Andreessen, you're just like a worse version of Andreessen, then Andreessen's just going to dominate you. Mm-hmm. Every time that you want to win a deal, Andreessen's going to win it instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you need to find what is the axis of differentiation. Mm-hmm. And those axes of differentiation, I think, generally are what effectively determine the terminal number of players mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to a particular space and venture. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't actually have a, 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 an axis of differentiation, then you're just going to disappear under someone's shadow. So, so, so you predict there's going to be more kind of specialty funds. Like if you want like a legal mind, you, maybe you have like Kitty Hawn on your cap table or something like that. And you, maybe you have um, Paradigm for more research or something like that. Yeah, that, that's right. But the, the question is, um, you know, are each of these individual things enough to keep you differentiated, yeah. right? In a bull market, it's very easy to brand capital. Mm-hmm. Um, in a bear market, it becomes a lot more difficult. As a relative outsider of kind of EA myself, is, is EA a monolithic entity or are there any major noteworth, noteworthy sects that kind of branch off? Is it like a, like a hyper-utilitarian sect or like how, how does that work as someone more inside EA than me? Uh, I'm less inside EA these days than I used to be. I was, I was much more into it um, like six, seven years ago. So I consider myself an EA, although it's a, it's a, a term of art that now is under fire. And so, you know, it's one that I'm, I'm kind of actively trying to think through what it means for me. But EA, I mean, for, for EA, it's, it's, it's an idea that obviously most people, I mean, you're in college. It's, it's an idea that most people get exposed to while they're in college. Mm-hmm. And the, it's, it's, a, it's a time when you're still kind of pluripotent. 
and you don't know what you're going to become, and you can kind of become anything. And you know, it's it's that's the time when these concepts I think are most um, relevant and also most appealing to most people. Uh, and so for that reason, I mean, there are just a lot of people who've been exposed to these ideas when they were in college, and so. Uh, lots of young people or people who are fairly early on in their career, I think, who would find themselves to be persuaded by EA. Now, there is a sort of inner sanctum of, call it, you know, it's got diehard EAs or EA leaders that are much more vocal and uh, end up, you know, kind of speaking for the EA movement to a much larger degree, um, the most famous of whom are, you know, people like Will McCaskill or Toby Ord. Um, then you also have, you know, sort of at the, at the, the farther edges, you have um, people out in industry or out in you know different sectors who are EA aligned or EA sympathetic, right? So one example of that is someone like Vitalik or Matt Iglesias, who are uh, well-known figures intellectually. Um, they don't make it their absolute life's work, right? Vitalik is mostly focused on Ethereum, but he's clearly somebody who's sympathetic to the the ideas behind effective altruism. So I think there's uh, it's it's really a broad field. There are people who are very, very close to the center. There are people who are very much on the outskirts. But I think EA describes the whole landscape. Do, do you think that the recent FTX incident and its proximity to EA is going to land like a blasting load to the ideology? Or do you think that it's going to be uh, somehow rebranded and um, continue on in some different form or, or same form? I think EA, I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm not sure. But I suspect that EA will ultimately be fine. But I think the probably what will happen is that the the most hardcore contingent is going to lose some face and also lose some influence. So the folks who are the most extreme, and really that's what Sam was. Sam was sort of an extremist, right? He donated 99% of his wealth, the whole thing about sleeping on a beanbag and owning a Toyota Corolla or whatever. Um, and this explicit, almost um, maniacal pursuit of just making money so that he could be sort of as ascetic as possible in his pursuit of effective altruism. I think that is going to be perceived with suspicion from now on, um, or at least with the sense that this is, this is unhealthy. It's an unhealthy fixation. Uh, the same thing, but, you, you know, if, if let's say there's a, you know, a Christian priest who shoots up a church or whatever, right? Um, I think most people would be pretty quick to be able to say, like, look, well, this priest is obviously out of his mind, and this is not really a judgment on Christianity so much as this one really messed up guy. Um, I, I, I want to say the same thing seems to be true of Sam, right? I don't know many, many other EAs. This is not like a broad-based pattern that EAs tend to defraud customers and, you know, smuggle funds. Um, but I think it, it may be seen as an indictment of extremism. And if you notice that it was instead of a, uh, you know, a, a priest, if it, was a, if it was a monk, then people would also be quick to say, like, oh, I think, you know, the, the, the idea of being a monk is, is so, it's, it's so warping of your mentality and blah, blah, blah. And, like, uh, you know, any time that somebody is really occupying the extrema, there are so few counterexamples because there are so other few people who are like Sam. Um, but there are a lot of people who are just sort of EA moderates. They're just, they do it, they believe in the philosophy, they find it to be compelling, um, and, it, and it motivates them at the margin, but is not the primary vector of their life. Um, I think EA is going to be fine sort of in the moderate version, but I think the extreme version has definitely taken a big, a big hit because of this. I believe it was Ryan Selkis recently who had a tweet about kind of securities laws and the lack of regulatory clarity with respect to crypto, kind of holding it back, at least in the U.S. Do you think that this is largely true or do you think this only pertains to sort of fee extraction businesses or protocols, i.e. like DeFi protocols? That the lack of regulatory clarity is holding crypto back? Yeah. Um, I think it is true, um, 
although it is always a little bit cute to say because you know it's like the lack of regulatory clarity is holding us back but if the regulatory clarity is not what we want to hear then it's holding us back even more right so to some degree i, I actually think that although it would be nice to have regulatory clarity that we like I would be I would be much happier to have regulatory opacity uh, rather than regulatory um, you know regulatory black hole, and there are many countries around the world that basically have that that make it effectively impossible to actually do crypto, and you can tell what we have in the U.S. is much better than that. So I, I take that with a grain of salt. I guess is what I would say. How how should we view Gensler in the wake of kind of FTX and U.S. crypto ge regulation more generally? Like we don't exactly know what happened with FTX U.S., but it seems like they were a, like a more legitimate, better capitalized corporation that only did like spot assets or things of that nature. Yeah, so I, I don't know any of the details. Um, it's clearly a surprise to many people that FTX U.S. filed for bankruptcy. Um, I've heard, and this is not a confirmed rumor, that in the mayhem last week, that FTX International ended up dipping into FTX U.S. funds. And that's why FTX US, while previously fully solvent, now has to file for bankruptcy. Now, I don't know if that's true. And again, everything right now is in the category of hearsay, so it's all still fog of war. Um, but uh, if that is the case, then I think that's probably going to be the strongest grounds for a criminal prosecution of, of Sam in the US, would be my guess, if that's in fact what happened. Right now, we don't know. So everything is still giant, giant question marks. Mm -hmm. Though crypto is a is a global game, do do you th do you see any common characteristics between founders and er between founders and early stage crypto protocols generally? Like, do they exhibit like high conscientiousness, kind of sheer intellectual aptitude, or any other common characteristics or traits? Um, among crypto founders, I would say uh, they are they are very high in disagreeableness. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most common thing. Uh, it's hard not to notice it in crypto Twitter that most founders are, are assholes. Uh, beyond that, I think there's there's a there's a pretty broad range. Um, you know, there there are. Yeah, I, I I'd say there's there's a range when it comes to conscientiousness as well. Um, yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is disagreeable. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, last question: If if we were able to run your professional career in, in a simulation. At what point of the distribution would you say your professional career falls on? 30%, 50%, 90%? I don't know. Uh, this is something that I think about often. Um, like, without thinking about it, without, without taking any of the idiosyncratic facts, your answer should generally be 50%, right? And so you mm -hmm. sort of want to look through to your life and, and try to say, okay, what things do I feel like I got lucky on? And what forms of luck were they, right? And so... There's an absolute sense in which, like, okay, I'm like 99.9 .9 percentile because how lucky was I to be smart? How lucky was I to be born in America? How lucky was I to speak English and to, like, have the, you know, be able-bodied, right? Like, all, hitting all those, hitting all, all, all four of those in one life, it's pretty freaking good, right? Like, most people don't, most people don't have any of those. Um, and so there's some sense in which, okay, clearly I, I hit the massive, massive luck of the draw. Add to that nothing else that, that happened in my life. Um, there's another part of me that looks at my life and says, okay, well, you know, I don't have famous parents. I didn't have a rich family. I didn't have um, any connections. I didn't go to, you know, I went to a state school, which I, I you know, I went to UT Austin. I studied um, liberal arts. I studied English and philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I had to teach myself 
almost everything that I have ended up doing in my life, right? I taught myself poker, I taught myself how to code, I taught myself how to become an investor. Um, nobody trained me in any of these things. I just went and figured out how to do it, and I did it. And uh, I did, I, I, at least a feel, um, my sort of first-person experience is that I did it without having anybody pull me up or any favors or any people in high places. Uh, I got there through my own hustle and hard work. Uh, but of course, that's, that's, I think, a little too sappy to take that um, at face value. So the answer, I mean, the answer I ultimately arrive at is that I don't know. I, I, would, I would guess probably somewhere in the 90th percentile. Is it the 99th? Is it the 95th? Is it the 90th? Uh, I don't know. But um, just, just by observing the fact that I'm pretty fortunate and pretty high up on the, on the pole of outcomes for human beings um, makes me assume it has to be somewhere in the 90th percentile, but I, I don't know where. Thank you so much for doing this today. My pleasure. My pleasure.